Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and related to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach, reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're also going to share some exciting offers and opportunities for you. And please feel free to share this program with people who you know, who will also find it of interest. Today, I'm really pleased and excited to be sharing with you a program that was previously recorded as an Inspiration from Zion webinar a year ago. Tomorrow, we begin the celebration all around the world, of the biblical holiday Passover. In Hebrew, it's called Pesach. And as part of the Inspiration from Zion Global Passover Prayer for Israel, we hosted four programs last year. This was one that was so tremendous. And in re-listening to it all over again, I had to share with you as a podcast today. One of the reasons I'm really excited about uh, the program today is that it's entirely unrehearsed, unscripted, And we have kind of a roadmap, or at least I do, about where I want to take the conversation, but I think we may entirely go off script um, any number of occasions as well, to the extent that there is or will be a script. Um, What this is meant to be is a dialogue between two wonderful, knowledgeable, personable rabbis who are both in their own right, great teachers and communicators. And we were just speaking before the before uh, everyone started joining us. It's not meant to be a debate, but in the finest of Jewish traditions, some wonderful in-depth conversations can easily become a debate. So we'll just see where it goes. Uh, and I'm excited about that. Um, but the purpose now, tonight, I'm, I'm always saying tonight because it's nighttime here. Um, the purpose is to explore Passover, mostly for our Christian friends who are following. I think most people who are are Christian uh, and joining us from the prism of our uh, Jewish experience. Now, uh, to quickly introduce our, our guests and to kind of get into that dialogue, um, we have with us Rabbi Avi Balmo and Rabbi Pesach Wolicki, who, as I said, are both knowledgeable, thoughtful teachers, lecturers, and friends. Um, and, I, and I'm really privileged to have them here on all those accounts. Um, Rabbi Baumel, um, who's in the blue Wabi wave, okay, um, serves as the Jew, uh, Jewish community leader of Krakow, Poland. Um, and although he's my next door neighbor here in Efrat, he commutes back and forth when we don't have a pandemic and is a central part of the life cycle events and the revival of the Jewish community in Krakow, uh, Poland, um, as well as dealing with the scars of the past in the wake and shadow and the, of the destruction of the Holocaust and the Jewish communities that were decimated there. Um, he engages Christians uh, widely in Poland. He learned Polish in order to do so, which um, impresses me. I- I'm impressed and, uh, and, and, and lectures in Polish and in English. And 
and is um wait I, I thought this was in polish this this uh webinar this oh i'm trying to think i can only say thank you in polish <laughs> i'll save that for the end uh you can try out your polish if you want thank you um and uh, he engages Christians widely there in Poland, which is really wonderful. Um, has a long his, uh, history as a communal rabbi and 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 educated um, with with lots of degrees that we're not going to go into. But is what it's wonderful to have uh, Rabbi Balmol aboard with us. Rabbi Pesach Wiliki and I have overlapped and interacted and become close friends um, over the over a number of years. Um, he's worked with a wide range. Of Jewish and Christian organizations, also building bridges through his unique ability to emphasize the common denominators of God and Israel, the Torah, and of course the state of Israel and the significance of that to us as Jews and Christians. He lectures frequently at churches, Christian colleges, and seminaries. Um, he's written and published articles appearing in the Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel, and Charisma. And, um, and I'm excited to give a little teaser for the fact that he's working on a really exciting book project that that, that uh, is in tandem with a project that we have uh, called Verses for Zion to teach uh, Christian children about um, the significance of Israel through studying verses, biblical verses relating to Israel. So we'll look forward to sharing more about that when we're ready. But that's been a long introduction. Let's jump into some of the questions. I think what we're going to do tonight, folks, is kind of go back and forth and, and uh, I'll pose the question comment and have one of our uh, esteemed rabbis respond and then and, and then the other can add or comment or or debate if we get into that um I'd just like so, to say uh yeah in, by way of introduction that uh, i'm very much looking forward uh, to a discussion a dialogue i'm a little nervous about a debate i'll tell you why i found myself at a distinct disadvantage here because rabbi pesach Wiliki, his name actually means passover yeah so you have Guy, you're debating and he, about Passover, and his name is Passover. Right. All I'm God is an Abraham, and yeah. that's a hard one to. to that's right, to Rabbi. Up. It's over before it started. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, well, let's give it a shot since you're both here anyway. And with that, how about we ask the first question to Rabbi Baumol? Um, something personal and really very important as it relates to Judaism and 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 everything we do. Food during Passover. There are certain kinds of food we don't eat. Chametz is the Hebrew, any form of leaven product from, from grains. Um, and, and that is all kinds of baked food and prepared foods and even uh, alcohol and what have you. Relating to you in your life, and, and this allows you to kind of go back a little bit, what, um, what are your favorite Passover foods? And where, when, where do those traditions come from? What, is, what, are the food, what does food hearken to you? Well, you know, you certainly know how to start when you go straight to my uh, my stomach and uh, my, the fond memories that I have. And Jews, you know, we get together, we get together to uh, pray, we get together to uh, celebrate, and usually both of those occur with an eating before or after or during. So there's a lot of food uh, elements related to uh, to our Jewish experience and our calendar. And uh, Pesach might be the most prominent one, uh, where the foods are not just um, an addition to, uh, an ancillary to part of the program, but here the food is an essential component to how we tell the story. 
In fact, a great rabbi thousands of years ago, Rabbi Gamliel, and we recite him at the, in the evening, he said, if you don't point to various foods and talk about them and let them integrate into your Pesach experience, you are not fulfilling this great mitzvah, this great uh, uh, commandment to tell this story properly. So if in the story of Passover, thousands of years ago, the, the Israelites started their process, started the whole story with food, with a meal, with a korban Pesach, with the, with the Passover sacrifice, with the Paschal lamb. That's how the whole story began. And that is, in, you know, in temple times, the essential, the, 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 the most important component of the uh, experience. And afterwards, then there's the matzah that's, uh, that's uh, representing many different things. It's obviously vital for generations for us to, to uh, connect to the foods and the, the way that the, uh, the foods are presented and, and how we talk about them and what they mean to us. You know, I'd love to say that um, matzah is my favorite, but uh, I'll eat a bagel any day of the week. <laughs> Um, and uh, matzah, on the other hand, is very hard. It's a very difficult food to consume. And we have to ask ourselves, and we do around the Seder table, why? Why are we forced to eat this, and we're supposed to eat this matzah, and at the same time try to express a redemptive experience? So we, ha- we have uh, like different dichotomous uh, uh, definitions or uh, expressions of, of a matzah, and, uh, and, and we go around the table and everyone tries to give their interpretation. Sometimes it's more subjective and sometimes it's more standard, but we're trying to apply the messages of thousands of years ago to our lives today. So for me, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a special holiday with special types of foods, but not necessarily the ones that uh, uh, are about you know, how, how tasty they are, but more, more about how meaningful they are. Lovely. That's nice. Thank you. Um, Rabbi Willicky, what are you, what about you? Pesach? Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to accidentally keep doing that. I'm uh, by mixing up folks. If I call him Pesach, I don't mean to be calling him Pesach. I'm calling him Rabbi Willicky, but I'm referring to the holiday Pesach, which is Passover. So, okay. Rabbi okay. Willicky, what about the Passover foods? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Um, as I was listening to Rabbi Baumel, it, uh, it occurred to me that, um, the uniqueness of the meal that we're having, when we talk about Passover foods, as Rabbi, as Rabbi Baumel said, these foods are not ancillary. They're not just like, oh, it's this holiday, so our custom is to eat this type of food because that's the custom for the holiday, the way Americans will eat, you know, turkey and, and uh, you know, and, and, and cranberry sauce on Thanksgiving because that's how you celebrate. This isn't the celebration. Um, the with the uniqueness of the foods that we're eating at the Seder, and here I'm not I'm not just echoing what Rabbi Baumol said, but maybe taking it in a slightly different direction, is the actual ritual, the primary ritual of this holiday is not something done in the synagogue. It is the actual eating of these foods. Meaning, let me put it this way. It says in scripture, in the book of Exodus, we are told that on the day of the Exodus from Egypt, we are to tell the story and eat specific foods. And the eating of those foods is actually the fulfillment of a commandment. It is service of God. It's worship. And that sounds a little strange to people. We're worshiping God by eating. Now, that only sounds strange to us 
because we are modern people who don't live in temple times. If, if we live in the time of the temple, in the temple, it was very common for there to be foods that were part of temple service, that were part of offerings that were brought, that would be consumed as part of worship. A great example of that is the Thanksgiving offering. Like in, in Psalm uh, uh, 116, where the psalmist says that I will bring a, a sacrifice, an offering of thanksgiving and call out the name of the Lord. That's not just celebrating something. That is actually a very specific ritual. When someone had a was thanking God for a personal redemption, they were healed from an illness or they survived something, uh, something great happened to them in life and they want to thank God publicly, they would bring this offering to the temple. But this isn't an offering that would then get burnt on the altar. This is an offering that they would invite their friends and family and they would sit down and eat it and the eating itself, the consuming of this of this food is itself a form of worship. Now, let me just explain how that works, because I think about this a lot at Passover that, you know, this isn't like, you know, we go to synagogue and we say whatever ritual prayers, whatever liturgy we have to say for the day and then come home. And now we're going to have our festive meal. That's not what this is. The meal itself is a ritual and including the eating, the quantities that we eat, the order in which we eat things, the specific things that are eaten are some of them are mentioned directly in the Bible. Some of them came slightly <laughs> after in early rabbinic times and temple times, but we're doing, we're eating the exact same foods that were eaten in the temple uh, on this day. And that's the actual fulfillment. And again, so our relationship to food spiritually becomes different in that regard. We're worshiping God through this eating. And the way this makes sense to me is that eating is something that we enjoy. It gives us sustenance. Um, we're, we're literally taking in the fuel of our lives. And when we do that in the context of praising God, in the context of thanking God, what we're doing is we're actually elevating the entire experience that this physical, like putting gas in the tank, so to speak, when I'm putting food in so I have sustenance so I can live. What I'm basically saying is that my life, my very physical life is all about service of God. So here I'm actually even my my eating. It's actually a very profound type of worship uh, that that I'm I'm enjoying this. My enjoyment is an enjoyment of of thanking and praising God. My the sustenance that I'm getting from it is a sustenance that I'm getting in the context of serving and praising God. So it's uh, I find it a very deep experience in that regard. Uh, and uh, I, I do like eating matzah. I know Rabbi Baumel said it's difficult to eat. It's definitely difficult to digest. I I love matzah. I actually enjoy it. And I'm one of those strange people who eats matzah all year round. I have neighbors who. Uh, when they have leftover matzah, a lot of a lot of people are sick of matzah by the end of Passover, by the end of the seven days. So I have neighbors who are, you know, they get sick of matzah. They all know that they could give me their leftover matzah because I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat it all year. Well, that's all. Okay, so that's awesome. Okay, so uh, let me, uh, yeah, let me ask. Let me throw something out at you and see if uh, if you agree. It's going to be a, a provocative statement. Um, on Pesach the most significant aspect of the food regarding this holiday is that which we don't eat more than even the matzah, which we do eat. Agreed. Oh, so that's something that is uh, unusual. I for agree people. with you. Absolutely. Right. We, we, we know that eating matzah is very important, but Oh, if you eat chametz, then uh, you are in a whole lot of trouble. 
and the idea of the chametz seems to take center stage, which somewhat counterintuitive, right? We have we have general holiday where we eat things, and this means this, and this means that, and you know we get that. And comes along the Torah and says, no, 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 no. The things that you sh- normally eat, the things which represent joy, which represents opulence, which represent uh, uh, um, you know time and, and enjoyment, that you're prohibited in the most serious way. No bread, no bagels, no cakes, nothing that uh, is what is part of your normal daily routine. And I think that we are, you know, ask any person who's who's preparing their house for Passover, and the the the, the, the fear is what happens if I encounter if I forgot about some chametz? What what do we do then? And that's a real major concern. And at, at our Pesach table, we're going to have a major discussion about why not eating the chametz is more important than eating the matzah. That's great. Do you want to respond, Rabbi, Rabbi Luthi, or, 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 or Yeah, gonna... it, it, look, listen, it's, uh, it, I, I'm not sure that I agree with the very last sentence that you said, that it's more important than eating the matzah, because the eating of the matzah on the, on the first day, meaning on that night, on the Seder night, is a direct command in the Torah in the same way that there's a direct command not to have any chametz. So I don't know if I would rank them as one well, being more important the than the other. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It definitely brings a it brings a, a severe punishment. Um, but uh, you know, the there's also another angle. There's another side to the not eating of chametz, and the uh, meaning not eating leaven and only eating matzah, which is actually a very simple explanation that uh, I don't hear too often. But but I say it to my to my children every year at the seder is that in the temple itself. In the temple itself, if you read through all of the offerings in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers and wherever the wherever the sacrifices, wherever the temple service is laid out in the Torah, read through, you know, all those boring sections that have all the details of every offering and this much oil and this much wine and this much and this animal and what you do with the blood. And and there's all the meal offerings and there are and, and meal offerings were made from flour. One of the rules in the book of Leviticus, right near the beginning of the whole sacrificial section of that book, is that it was forbidden to have any leaven in the temple. Meaning, the, you know, everyone knows about the showbreads, right? There was the table in the temple that had the showbreads on it. What most people do not know, you have to read the words carefully in the Bible, but in our, in our collective imagination, we picture these loaves of bread. Those were matzahs. There was no bread in the temple that was leavened, except one day a year, which was on the on the holiday of Shavuot, Pentecost, which is an exception. But that's an exception. That's not our topic tonight. The point being that on Passover, what we're actually doing is we're behaving as though we're in the temple. Here I am. I'm not. I'm. It's like I'm in the temple. I'm eating. If it was temple times, I'm eating sacrificial meat. I am not eating any leaven in the temple. There's no leaven. Even in the Egyptian Passover, that only happened once where they put blood on their home. The only place that blood of a sacrifice is put at all in the Bible is on the altar in the temple. So it's almost as though the home has become a kind of miniature temple so that even though all year round I can eat leavened bread, 
But in the temple all year round, they're not eating leavened bread. So for one week out of the year, my home has the same rules as the temple does. Nice. Nice. Um, I can see that we're in for a really uh, enriching conversation um, on, on the back and forth on just that one uh, question. Um, I know that there are questions, so please, please, folks, do, uh, do write your questions in the chat. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill, they are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Um, I will just add in my two cents, and I'm not a rabbi, so and I don't pretend to be one, but I love matzah, and I also happen to, uh, as some of you may, may know, there's a traditional food, everyone has their own different way of making it, called matzah brai, typically eggs, ma crumbled up matzah, and water. I, I have a my own book in the works, a, a cookbook of gourmet matzah brai. Um, so, so Rabbi Bauman, when you come home and you're next door, we'll save you some matzahs. Um, but we've got about a hundred, uh, I think a hundred different recipes for matzah brai wow. that we're working on. And if anyone's following and doesn't know what matzah brai is and wants to know, please be in touch. Um, let's, let's move on to the next question. Again, most of our, uh, guests following this tonight are Christian. And so for many of them, they're not familiar with the Jewish, um, customs, but be, because Passover, is one of the three biblical pilgrimage holidays and one of several other holidays, including the more, including the modern ones, uh, um, Yom HaTzma'ud, Israeli Independence Day, and others that Christians are connecting and celebrating with. Um, uh, maybe we'll start with Rabbi Willicki this time. Um, why do you think that, that that is especially the case with Passover, that Christians are connecting and celebrating and, and, and interacting? And, and, and I know you're an Orthodox rabbi, but what would, what's from your perspective having had these conversations a lot, the significance of Passover to Christians, if that's not inappropriate. No, it's very appropriate. It's a, it's a good question. And, you know, in the space that you and I, Jonathan, work in, where, you know, we're part of organizations, Jewish organizations, uh, or Jewish and Christian organizations that are in this, in this relationship building space, uh, this topic comes up every year. Um, and it's something that that's discussed. And I have a, a slightly different view than even most of the people who work in our line of work about Christians celebrating Passover. There are some Jews who are who are uncomfortable by Christians celebrating Passover. Uh, and it's very and and the reason is that they feel it's almost like cultural appropriation uh, or that Christians are kind of, you know, taking Passover and doing something else with it. 
this is not my view. I'm just going to lay out a common view and that I think it's important for Christians to be sensitive about. And that is that um, when Christians do celebrate Passover, naturally, as Christians, and they're people of the Christian faith, what they do is they uh, see all kinds of symbolism in what they're doing on Passover that relates to Jesus. Uh, the crucifixion of Jesus happened around this time of year. The Last Supper scene, as detailed in the book of Matthew, is actually a Passover Seder. And therefore, there are certain things that are that are done and said in that in the Christian scriptures and in Christian uh, in the Christian history that relate directly to Passover um, and relate to some of the symbolism and, and attribute Christian symbolism to some of the things that are going on on Passover. This type of uh, approach to Passover, I'm going to be very frank with you, for most Jews makes them very uncomfortable. Uh, it's uncomfortable because, you know, our Passover is Exodus chapter 12, 13, 14. You can read it there. You got all the rules of how Passover goes. It's about our exodus from Egypt um, and the commands that God gave us. In fact, I'll go even further. When it comes to Passover specifically, one of the rules that's stated in Exodus chapter 12, when the laws of the Passover sacrifice and the meal and the matzah and all that stuff is first told by God to Moses and Aaron. One of the rules of Passover is that someone who is not a member of the Jewish people is forbidden from participating. It's interesting because that that rule does not exist with the other holidays. And I'm not saying this to say that you're not allowed to participate. Not at all. Uh, that that rule really relates to the actual eating of the meat of the offering. My point is that there's a uh, the what the theme of Passover from a Jewish perspective is very particularistic. It's very much about the nation of Israel, the Jewish people becoming a people and entering into the beginnings of our covenant as a nation. That covenant, of course, uh, was expanded at Sinai seven weeks later. But that's it's a very particularistic holiday, as opposed to, let's say, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a very universalistic holiday. The liturgy has universal themes and the book of Zechariah talks about it being celebrated by all nations. That's not the case with Passover. So from an internal Jewish perspective, there's this discomfort with Christians celebrating Passover. That's not my approach at all. My attitude is actually the polar opposite. I believe uh, my personal feeling is that Christians should feel totally comfortable celebrating Passover as Christians. And it's not my place to tell Christians how to celebrate Passover and what symbolism to attribute to things and whether they're going to Christologize things or not. And it's not cultural appropriation for a very simple reason. This event has importance in Christian history. The Last Supper the, the meal that Jesus had with his with his disciples was a Passover Seder. And there's there's a scene in the book in, in the in the New Testament that can be read there. So if a Christian wants to connect with that event and wants to connect with the with the origins of Christianity that surround that Passover, who am I? Who am I to tell them, oh, don't celebrate Passover. That's cultural appropriation. So I have no problem whatsoever with christians celebrating passover uh i think it's you know and and it's uh and, and in, in general i think that christians 
connecting with biblical feasts, biblical holidays, based on the lunar biblical calendar that we follow is a net positive. I mean, that is the true calendar and that is God's seasons. And I think it's a positive thing for Christians to connect. However, at the same time, the Christians who are in a Zoom call like this or watching this, who are interested in having a positive and understanding relationship with Jews need to be sensitive to how Jews see this festival and not uh, uh, try to force the, the Christian symbolism and the Christian interpretations of these practices onto this holiday and to appreciate what this what this festival means. What does the matzah mean? What does the wine mean? What does the Seder mean? What does the lamb mean? What does the blood mean? What do they mean not from a Christian perspective, but what do they mean for Jews? Does that mean that you have to drop all your your Christian perspective in your own in your own observance of the day? Absolutely not. But if we're looking for that sensitivity and we're looking for that understanding, we have to appreciate that this festival has a very different meaning for Jews than it has for many Christians. I'm not going to say oh, I don't, right. but for many Christians who market and celebrate it with a through a a, a Jesus lens. I hope great. this is a good answer. That's a great um, answer. And, and uh, Rabbi Bauma, before you uh, continue, I just want to, uh, or, or comment, um, I just want to interject. I believe our friend Bishop Uma from Tanzania is with us at the moment. I'm just kind of scrolling through to make sure he's there. He asked a great question earlier in the day. No, he's not at the moment, but if he comes back on, he might want to. He asked a great question. Um, which is which is so intuitive from a Christian perspective. Um, what did he email me? What what do we we what do we Jews use instead of the body and the blood of Jesus at the Passover Seder as we Christians believe? Um, so I think you just I think you just addressed that really well. But if he comes back on, um, we'll see certainly see if he's got any additional uh, question on that. Um, Rabbi Baumel, you work often in a different. Uh, market, if you will, among Christians. What's your thought about Christians observing, your flooding your experience about Christians observing and celebrating Passover? Um, I certainly grew up with that discomfort. Uh, I'll tell you right now, Rabbi Pesach, uh, and knowing that the regular traditional uh, Jewish thought is that it is prohibited for uh, Christians to certainly uh, join my Passover table. Uh, so I kind of have that in the back of my mind. But in the last years, I've been exposed, and Jews, generally Orthodox Jews in particular, aren't, aren't, aren't usually exposed to uh, other cultures and other religions and, uh, and don't really get a sense of the true desire of uh, people of other faiths and shared faiths to um, their curiosity and their interest. Um, I, as, as was said in the introduction, I've been the rabbi in, uh, in Krakow, Poland for the last seven years. And um, for me, it's been an eye-opening experience. I have some po Polish students who are, uh, who are big uh, uh, Passover uh, uh, celebrators uh, on this call. And I recall uh, um, around five years ago, I got a call from, um, from an organization that asked me to join a, a mock Passover because they understood they couldn't have the rabbi on Passover. So a few days before Passover, 
if I could go and, uh, and share with them some thoughts about Passover, kind of like what we're doing here, but in a hall with the Passover Seder, with the plate and, and, uh, and, every, and everything like that. It was from a place called Novosanch, which had a huge Jewish community before the war. And this group uh, invited me to come there. And I thought, okay, we'll sit there, the 10 of us, we'll sit there, a few of us. And I got there, there were 150 Christians, Poles, Christians, who, including the priests and the bishop, and everyone was sitting there. And everyone was sitting there over the Seder plate. And in fact, they were all eating the Seder plate. And I had to like slow them down to say, wait a second, we don't just eat the Seder plate. I mean, we, we talk about the Seder plate um, before we go and dig into uh, to the, to the, 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 the meal. And I understood that I think that they were trying to connect. Now, obviously, I didn't ask every single one of them, you know, what are you doing this for? What does this mean to you? Are you trying to get to the root of Passover? After all, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was celebrating Passover, probably like Jews have been celebrating Passover, right? The, the interpretation that he gave kind of took on a new uh, meaning for Christians. But perhaps that's one approach that you're taking, that you're trying to figure out what the original um, source is, right? If the if the wine isn't you know the blood of Christ, then what is the wine? And then you'd have to say, okay, well, you know, before Jesus, what did wine represent in the Bible? And what you know, why in, in Psalms one hundred four do they talk about it, wine being gladdening the heart and and bread uh, giving sustenance and and what those meant to a, you know ancient Near Eastern uh, Jews and and uh, and people at the time? But I also feel that. Christian Poles who are sensitive to be living in Poland, where there used to be 3 million Jews and now there are 3,000 Jews or 5,000 or whatever the number might be. I think that part of their desire to celebrate Passover, to learn about Passover, to learn from a rabbi is to reconnect with the Poland of the past, with reconnecting that part of Poland was also a Jewish community and a Jewish life. And part of Christianity was also that it, it started from a, a Jewish source. So for me, um, I found that inspiring, that uh, they, they were there to respect the Judaism that was part of their Polish heritage, and they wanted to learn more about it. And uh, it behooved me then, and it does now, to continue on this mission to try to uh, uh, enlighten and to you know talk about what's happening uh, at the Pesach Seder. Thanks for that. Thank you. Um, it, it's also interesting and a good segue c- kind of to my next question. Uh, I wasn't thinking about it so much from the perspective of Poland and the and the Holocaust, um, but next week, for instance, uh, one of our one of the top four programs that we're doing this global Passover prayer for Israel is going to be with a panel of four former Soviet Jewish refuseniks, which we can argue uh, as to how close that it was to the uh, enslavement of the Jewish people as in uh, as in Egypt or, or, or the liberation of the Soviet Jews. We're going to speak about that experience. Um, you certainly bring in a, um, a, a foot in in a more distant past, but still in our in our in our. Um, uh, uh, in, in our in our immediate awareness, it's not ancient history for us in terms of the Holocaust. 
of slavery. But one of the interesting things about how we do Passover is that we're to tell the story as if we were slaves. And I always find that challenging because uh, I don't know what that means. We, I mean, and, and maybe because we're in a video, I, I don't have a video. I don't know what it looks like. We're also doing, we're, by the way, we're also doing a program next week with Bishop Glenn Plummer to talk about the common the similarities between the African-American enslavement experience and liberation and, and ours. And, and we have much more common material, much more current material uh, about, the, about the slavery experience. But in terms, of the, in terms of how we're sitting at our Passover table Saturday night and we're telling the story and we have to put ourselves somehow in the mindset of, having be, of, of not having been slaves, being slaves. How do you do that? Uh, rabbis, I think Rabbi Wilkie, it's your turn. How do we do that? Well, I think one way is connecting with current events. Um, and, you know, one of the lines that we say in the Seder is that in every generation, there are those who rise up against the people of Israel and the Holy One, blessed is he, God saves us from their hands. Happens all the time. And we need to connect the Passover Seder to what we are currently living. I think that's a very important part of it. The Passover Seder is not meant to be only a discussion of a historical event that happened a long time ago, as you said. We emphasize it right from the beginning and throughout it that we're talking about ourselves. And in fact, once we get to the second half of the Seder, after the meal, um, let me just explain the structure briefly for anyone who might not know so we understand what I'm talking about. When the Seder begins, we start with a cup of wine, you know, uh, you know, where we sanctify the day, which is what we do on every Sabbath and at every festival. And then we start in with the text and the rituals that relate to the Seder, but we're not eating it. We're telling the story of the exodus from Egypt, and we're talking about the importance of telling the story, and we're praising God for what he did in Egypt. And then we get to the part where we do the ritual eating of the matzah and the bitter herbs and the meal. But then after that meal, the liturgy continues, the text continues. But the text after the meal, from then to the end of the Seder, doesn't mention the exodus again the exodus is not it, it's it's not it's literally not even mentioned except there's a psalm that we say and in that psalm there happens to be a, a couple of lines that are about the exodus but there's other lines that are about other things the exodus is not what we're talking about after the meal ends we're talking about the future redemption we're talking about the exile that we're currently in we're talking about we end the Seder by by singing and, and calling out next year in Jerusalem. The focus of the second half of the Seder is the future. So really what you have in the Seder is, is that, you know, every one of us lives our lives. Look, I was born in a certain year and I'm going to die in a certain year and I live my life. I, I lived part of it in the 20th century and part of it in the 21st century. And that's that's my life. On the other hand, if we expand our our scope and say, wait a second, I'm I'm a link in a chain of history. I, the story of my life began thousands of years before I was born, and it's going to end long after I die. And that's my story. 
And therefore, we start the Seder by talking about the history. We then actually eat and engage, and we're, it's very much present tense. We are celebrating as though this happened to us. And then we talk about the future. And, you know, that is, you know, to me, that's a way to, you know, to bring it into our, our lives, to think about it, but also to talk about it. And I, I try to do this during the meal because that's like where it's about us is to talk about the current threats. What are, who are the current, mm. you know, there's always, it, it's an interesting thing being a Jew. There's always some group of people in the world who are declaring that they want to destroy the Jewish people. You know, today it's Iran and, and, uh, and maybe some others, some other, uh, you know, supporting actors uh, at, at various points. And then there was the Soviet Union that was trying to destroy Judaism and, 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 and then you have and you have Hitler and in every generation, there's someone who's trying to destroy us. And we're told in the text that was written thousands of years ago to relate this experience to our current experiences. So really, the exodus from Egypt is the story. But the exodus from Egypt is also being used as a metaphor for whatever is going on in our own lives. It's great. I think I think it's a, a very nice analysis, but I it, I don't think it answers the question, and for a good reason. Um, it, it it it's hard to answer that question. It's hard to answer that question. How do I tell my children what a, a slave is like? What what does it mean? So we try to figure out. Okay, slave is also anti-Semitism. There's a whole bunch of ways that we can skirt the issue of saying what does it mean to be a slave. You know, the Talmud. 1500 years ago says the following law um, if your parent dies you have to tear your shirt it's as if your heart is torn so you have to tear your shirt in half rip it and then the Talmud asks the question that in modern days we just don't understand the question the question is what if you only have one shirt and then the Talmud gives an answer okay you can sew it up somehow and for us, for me and my kids, my kids have 82 shirts and 42 pants and, and seven pairs of shoes and a phone and a this and a that. And they just have no idea. And I have no idea. You know, what does it mean to not have? And part of slavery, one, one part of slavery is not having. And the other part of slavery is not being able to control even what I do have. And those two aspects are very, very, very difficult to try to get that in the mindset of, of not being, you know, being able to control your, your, yourself and your, and your, your, your fate. Um, I try to teach them, and I've actually been printing out uh, stories of, uh, of slave narratives to try to, to get them to, you know, to get my, my, my kids to understand what the experience is like. You don't belong, your time is not yours, you have one shirt. You, uh, you can't make your own decisions. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. And perhaps the rabbis were saying, well, at the very least, eat the maror. You know, at the very least, make sure that you taste something so bitter, so uncomfortable. And you think back, well, here is a, you know, one th thousandth of an experience of what it might have been to at least eat like a slave for those who who don't know the hebrew word maror is the bitter herb that we eat during the during the seder so i i'm trying to teach my my family 
that that notion of 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 kind of having a, an experience outside of what we're normally used to and seeing things from another perspective short of you know bringing a slave or person who was a slave unfortunately nowadays it's possible right um uh, short of bringing someone to talk about that at my seder um it's a really really difficult thing to do okay thank you that's something that we need to contemplate because it's difficult and 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 yet it's still uh something that's uh, an obligation for us in addition to inspiration from zion another genesis 123 foundation program run for zion is the first program uniquely for Christians, centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. Talking uh, about your seder, uh, I want to. I'm, I'm hosting and and moderating between the two of you. We've got a fabulous group of people watching, and again, friends, continue. Uh, if you have questions, feel free to post them. Um, but let's let's pretend for a minute that this is a TV reality show, and I'm having you host guests who are not Jewish at your seder. What are the three things? That you have to that you have to instruct that you have to have them take out of the Passover Seder experience that would be taking place at your at your home Saturday night if this were if we had cameras there from all the different angles and we were broadcasting it well, maybe live Rabbi Balmo I think we're going to come back to you the most important thing that uh, I want some you know alien who's sitting at my seder to to experience is um, is the wow uh, there's so much going on and everyone is animated and everyone is involved and I want them to say why is Rabbi Baumel and his whole family dressed up in some kind of weird costume and why are they getting up in the middle of the Seder and they're walking around and acting like they're, they're slaves. And, and why are uh, all of a sudden they're, you know, they're, 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 they're erupting in song when, uh, when, you know, we didn't expect that. Um, and how is Rabbi, why is Rabbi Bamel asking and pointing to each person around the table to be involved and to interact and to bring their own, um, part of the Seder and part of their experience with, uh, with them. Uh, I sent out already a week ago a, um, a letter to everyone at the Seder. And I said, you know, there's an obligation to see, to apply the message of, uh, of the Passover experience, like Rabbi Hesach said, to uh, our day and age. And the way that uh, we're going to do it is we're going to say that everyone has a Passover Seder story to tell. Now, your story might not be, you know, from slavery to redemption in the finite physical sense of the word, but perhaps in a more uh, metaphysical way, you know, maybe psychologically you went through something that was a, was a, stri- a, a strife and a, tri- a struggle, and you have your own journey. And I want, I want everyone to talk about their journey because their journey is part of the ancient journey of the, of the people of Israel. So there's a lot of eating and a lot of drinking and a lot of uh, uh, dancing and a lot of everything going on in order to keep everyone as involved as possible on this night 
for us. Great. Bye-bye, Wuliki. Your table. The, the cameras are on. You've got guests or aliens or the aliens who are guests. Well, if I, yeah, exactly. If I have guests at my table who, who are not Jewish, they'd probably be Christian, considering that uh, a lot of my friends are Christian. Um, then you say three things. The number one thing that I would want them to gain from this is an appreciation for the Jewish historical consciousness. Let me explain what I mean. Um, in, in our work in Jewish Christian relations, you know, the work that we do when we encounter people, one of the first things that I learned when I started getting involved in Jewish Christian relations was that I started reflecting on my own Jewish identity, being around, you know, I'd spent so much of my life only among Jews and you start to think about your own identity more. I'm sure Jonathan, you have that same experience. Um, and the, one of the things that I noticed first is that Jews have a different relationship to history than, than non-Jews. We, we, we just do. Uh, and sometimes it can be, uh, sometimes it can cause a negative uh, uh, impact. Mostly, I think it's a net positive. I'll give you an example of the negative. Um, when I, when I talk to Jews about the fact that I'm involved in Jewish Christian relations, one of the common reactions, negative reactions that Jews will have, what, that they'll be resistant to Jewish Christian relations, has to do with the fact that there are, you know, there's a history of Christian anti-Semitism. Now, they'll literally say things like, think of what they did to us in the Crusades. Think of what the Christians did to us in the Spanish Inquisition. Now, these are things that happened between 500 and 1,000 years ago. Um, and, or even more recent things, you're a, a Christian living today. When I say that to Christians, that that's how Jews uh, think a lot of the time, very often the Christians will just think that that's a little bit odd. Because for a Christian living today, they don't identify with those past events. They don't see themselves as the extension of those Christians who persecuted Jews 500 years ago or 200 years ago or a thousand years. Or that we see that. Or that we see that. Right, exactly. They don't, they don't think in that historical way. And there's, I, as I reflect on this, as I, when I, again, when I first got involved in Jewish Christian relations, I thought about this a lot. The Jewish historical consciousness is very strong. Jews take history very, very seriously. In fact, most Jews, I think, don't even realize how seriously we take history compared to everyone else. Meaning, for in a Jewish uh, consciousness, something that happened 200 years ago is very recent. 500 to 1,000 years ago is a kind of mid-range. For something to be really, you know, something that, that happened a long time ago, that's like 2,000 years ago. I mean, that's kind of like, that's really the Jewish consciousness. I'll put it another way. When we're sitting in the synagogue on the holiday of Purim, reading the book of Esther, and it gets to the point in the story where we win the, where the Jews win the war, it is very tangibly, at an emotional level, a sense we won. We. We really very much feel this is us. This is what happened to us. 
the, the sense of collective identity that we have as Jews is not just a collective identity in the present tense. It's not even primarily in the present tense. It's very historical. If you, if you open up a Jewish prayer book and just read the daily liturgy, there's a lot of history in it. We, we talk about history a lot. We relate to history a lot. Our identities are very bound up in history. Some of that is enhanced by the fact that we're literally saying the same words daily that have been said by Jews for thousands of years. And that historical consciousness is on its, is, is on gr its greatest display is the Passover Seder. There's very much this, as I said before, kind of like a widening of the lens. Our, the Jewish identity, I think there's no greater expression of Jewish identity than the Passover Seder. So what I would want my guests to get a, a, a sensitivity to is how intensely Jews relate to Jewish history as a personal, very personal matter. Um, the other thing I'd like them to get from it is, uh, and this might be a little controversial to some people listening, is the value under certain circumstances of drinking four cups of wine. You know, because... Most of our uh, most of the Christians I know don't drink. It's kind of a taboo, and I understand where that's coming from. And I certainly don't advocate just you know, kind of casual drinking all the time. But there's context. Context is everything when it comes to when it comes to drinking wine. Uh, I'll put it this way: Let's say someone's depressed because I don't know, like their girlfriend broke up with them or they lost their job, and they start drinking. So what's going to happen as they drink? They're just going to get even more depressed, right? They're going to start crying and sobbing and talking about how their life is over, right? Let's say someone's happy because, you know, I don't know, they got a promotion or their or their their favorite sports team won a championship and they start drinking. What's going to happen as they drink? They're going to get even more happy. By the, by the end of the night, they're going to be hugging people and, and screaming for joy. In other words, what alcohol does is it turns up the volume on whatever it is we're feeling. And there's a rabbinic expression that when wine comes in, the secret or the truth comes out. When wine goes in, the truth comes out. And in other words, we, we drop all of our masks and we drop all of our externals and we emphasize what it is that we're feeling, whatever, whatever it is that we're experiencing. So now it's a dangerous thing. It's playing with fire. I understand the aversion to alcohol and seeing it as an evil. It causes lots of evil in the world. But if the context is set up and the framework is set up that the the what is going on is a celebration of God's redemption of the people of Israel throughout history. And we're honestly experiencing that and telling that story. And while we're doing it, we're progressively ingesting more and more wine as the night goes on. We're slowly well, not so slowly, sometimes turning up the volume on that whole relationship to God's redemption. And it actually has some value in in the right context. Okay. I'll leave it there. All right. So well, we're, gonna have a, we're gonna have a sign up list for those <clears throat> who want to go have wine at Rabbi Willicky Seder. Having having just purchased my two big bottles of grape juice for my Seder, I'm gonna have to <laughs> just dissent from your I actually uh, never I only drink yes. wine at the Passover Seder, by the way. I only drink wine at the Passover Seder. I don't even I'm drink it. I'm not a drinker wine. and I don't get it and it doesn't <laughs> excite me and I do my best to stay away from it and every possibility. So for those who can, and for those who, who, uh, you know, it, it does something for them. I hear it, but it's not working for me. <laughs> it's okay. 
moving on. I, I, I have a couple more questions, but I'm anxious for some of you. We're going to try and sneak your questions in. Um, anyone who has questions, feel free to use the chat. We're going to do a Q&A in a few moments. Um, I, I think, uh, Rabbi Balma, you were speaking before about specifically engaging your children. Um, and I think between the three of us, including children-in-law and soon-to-be children-in-law, we probably have about 20 of them. So we're veterans in raising children and having seders with, uh, with our children. Um, and, and the Passover Seder is uniquely, in many ways, focused on children. So I wanted to ask from your perspectives, both as, as fathers and rabbis and teachers, why is that important? And what have you done successfully in your parenthood or, 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 or rabbihood that has really engaged and enhanced your children's experience? Um, I forgot where we started. Rabbi Balma, you're in front of me right now nodding, so go. Um, it, it seems from you studied the text that the most fundamental aspect of the Passover Seder <clears throat> is to relate to your children. In fact, the Torah says, the Bible talks about teaching your children, telling the story to your children. Your child is the subject. It's not, you know, usually children are meant to be seen and not heard or not even seen and not heard. And, um, you know, I'm busy. I'm talking about important things. Um, wait till you get older. And comes along the Pesach Seder and it flips it on its head. It says, The Torah spoke about four different types of children towards which you should be telling your story. In other words, you're telling your Pesach story to your kids. It's a transmission to the next generation. And therefore, every single father and mother at the Pesach Seder has to become an educator and has to learn how to best uh, in, enlighten, inspire, keep your kids awake, do what you can to make sure that they get excited about this because it's a seminal moment in, during the year. The, the Torah tells us that, that um, the rabbis say that the Torah speaks to four different types of children. It's a famous passage that says, one is wise, one is wicked, one is simple, and one can't even ask a question. And I think the rabbis were, you know, learning the different uh, verses in such a way as to tell us that you might encounter, you might have four children with four completely different styles of cognition. You might have four different children with, with four different uh, sets of challenges. And if you're not ready to engage in each one on their own level, then you're, uh, you're going to you know, fail at, at reaching them all. And your job, your most important job, is to be a parent to your children and raise them to be inspired to go out and become the best that they can be. So you have, <clears throat> excuse me, you have a fascinating group of uh, a wicked person and a wise person, a wicked person, which is strange. You would expect that there would be, if you said one child is wise and one child is dumb. Nope, there's no such thing as a dumb child. There is no such thing as a wicked child or a child that is thinking in wicked ways or thinking in ways that are, that are against the grain or doesn't want to have anything to do with it or is rejecting it all, how do you deal with that child? That's a question that the Talmud wants you to focus on. And at the same time, another child 
is is filled with uh, wisdom and filled with excitement and filled with um, wanting to learn more and wanting to know more. And the rabbis teach us that you have to, based on a verse, Chanoch Lenar Al Bidarko, you have to teach each one of your children according to their capabilities, according to their level of cognition and, and, and development. And I think that this is the most important thing to do at the Seder table. I was at my rabbi Seder 20 years ago, 30 years ago, am I? And his, his children, he was a great rabbi, and his children were all great rabbis already. No one was young. There was no one five years old. They were all in their 20s and 30s, leaders and rabbis uh, in their communities. And he was still asking each one of them questions as if it was, you know, my young children, although, but the questions more, more intense and more uh, intellectual, he saw it as his obligation to in, engage these children. And that's what we used to do the same way. Beautiful. Thank you. Rabbi Wilhi, your, your Passover parenting experiences? Well, I have eight kids, so the kid's busy. I mean, the way <laughs> I usually do it, I mean, now my kids are a little bit older, so uh, um, it's a little bit different. And uh, I don't yet have grandchildren. Uh, but generally, I would have them each prepare a section of the Seder to talk about, to have them prepared in advance. Um, so that at each, that way they, they'd each studied a section of the Seder, and each year I'd give, give out different sections. And then at the Seder, they would lead the discussion for that section. Uh, that's a way of, so my role in teaching them would be by assigning them a section and having them prepare something, and that way they're people tend to remember things better when they do some work like that. But just the whole importance of children, I think it, it, it cannot be understated that in the right there at the very beginning in Exodus 13, when we're when the commandment to do this is first mentioned right there in Exodus 13, uh, verses six, seven and eight, when it's laying out, don't eat any um, uh, don't eat any leavened bread, eat only unleavened bread. And then in verse eight, right there, uh, this is ex again, Exodus 13, verse eight, on that day, tell your child, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And this is, you know, the fact that it's right there, meaning we have to think of it in a as a command from God right here. The same way God's commanding us to eat the matzah, the same way God is commanding us to, you know, in temple times, bring the Passover lamb offering. In the same way that God is, is commanding us, everything else that he commands us in the Bible, he's commanding us to tell this particular story to our children. And, you know, this relates back to what I said before about historical consciousness. So I'm very, uh, I, I, I speak to my children at the Seder a lot about the importance of historical consciousness of seeing our lives in a historical context but it's also it, it's it, it's worth thinking about for anyone who, who wants to live biblically to think biblically that this is a command from god to tell this story to our children that's a good point thank you that's great um i i i, I want to pause on my own interaction with you both it's been really i i hope that you all agree who watching this has been really uh engaging and, 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 and quite delightful um, and, and give you an opportunity to ask some questions. Um, you can use the chat for those of you who are on uh, Zoom with us. 
Uh, actually, maybe I'll just change the view so we can see all of you. Um, I, I, you know, certainly welcome conver uh, conversation now. Uh, it may be easier to get a couple of questions at once so the rabbis can address them. But on behalf of our friend and uh, board member, Dr. Dave Pitcher in Arizona, he asked a question, if one of you could explain um, the significance of breaking and hiding and then eating the middle matzah. Should I go first? Go ahead. Okay. So uh, this is an interesting ritual. Uh, at, let me just first explain what it is. At the beginning of the Seder begins, we have three matzahs on the table. Um, and we take one of the matzahs and we break it in half. It's one of the first things we do in the Seder. We break it in half and wrap up the larger half of it and essentially put it away. Now, uh, it's going to be eaten later on at the end of after the meal, much later in the Seder. Uh, in the, uh, but why do we do that? So that's the question. Now, uh, there's there's no 100 percent clear like this is the reason why we do it answer that's given. Um, the standard answer is that well, the answer that's given in the Talmud, which requires some explanation. So there is an answer given, but it's not so clear. The answer is that it's like a poor person. When a poor person who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from gets a hold of a, of a nice big you know, loaf of bread, they don't eat the whole thing in that meal because they don't know where the next meal is coming from. So they eat some of it and they put some of it away for another day. So since at the beginning of the Seder, think about what I said about, about the historical story that we're telling. We start off talking about the slavery and we start off, you know, dipping herbs in salt water to recall the tears of the slavery. And then as we get deeper into the night, we start celebrating the redemption. So at that early part of the Seder where we're trying to relate to the slavery and being poor and, and, and not being in control of our own destiny, we act like poor people where we're breaking the matzah and putting away the larger piece for later because we're poor and that's what poor people do which of course begs the question if we're putting it away like a poor person to eat on another day at a different meal we should be eating it the next day we eat it the same night but i kind of have already answered the question we eat it at the after the meal where we're already we're redeemed we're not the poor person anymore now we're free now we know where our next meal is coming from. So the very same piece that initially we put away because we were, because we were in dire straits, as the night goes on and we experience redemption, we feel comfortable pulling it back out and saying, you know what? I'm now a free man. I, I don't need to, I don't need to be worried about where my next meal is coming from anymore. And we eat that. We eat that. Uh, there's other, there are certainly other interpretations. What I'm telling you nice. is not a universally held interpretation. Dr. Pitcher says that was interesting. Rabbi Baumel, what do you have to add? Oh, not much. I, I think it's along the same lines. Uh, I, I like the idea of uh, breaking our matzah, um, breaking, breaking things down, um, recognizing that when we normally begin our meals, there's a sense of whole, there's a sense of completeness, and um, when we think about the matzah, we have to take it and we have to break it. Now, the matzah has, as I mentioned earlier, um, two 
seemingly diametrically opposing um, expressions. On the one hand, it's called bread of redemption. It's the bread that symbolizes the, 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 the exodus from Egypt. That's the matzah. On the other hand, we're talking about poor man's bread. It's so interesting that we take the bread that is, you know, the least, it, it is the, the, um, the simplest bread, right? The simplest chemical. It, it's flour and water with no other additives. So it's not complex, but its message is very complex. So you take something very simple like the matzah, and then you add the dimensions and layers and layers and layers so that you become like, uh, you know, like the experience of the matzah, that you're, you're celebrating freedom, but also a bit rushed. But also you feel like you're still at the beginning of your journey, but also you realize that this is representing finally re- being released from, from slavery. Try to figure all of that up at once. And one of the ways to do it is by breaking that matzah and saying, okay, it's not the whole you know, it's not a whole system of piece, it's a broken piece. And what do I do with that broken piece? Well, I try to put it together. And that's what we do during the Seder. Very nice. Thank you. Now, if you've stayed with us this long, you deserve a special reward. Beginning this year, the Genesis 123 Foundation has been offering a special gift each month. We've been giving away a special book called From Jonathan's Bookshelf, but also other gifts. And this month, we are giving away something that's really beautiful. If you haven't seen it, it's called, I call it at least, the Inside Out Mezuzah. It's a beautiful piece of art that has biblical text that's included in the mezuzah that Jews place on the doorposts of their house per the biblical injunction to do so. All I ask is that you go to the Inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. When you comment and share the link to this program, We will select one winner at random to win a copy of this magnificent piece of art that you'll want to frame and keep in your home or office. We're grateful that the podcast Inspiration from Zion is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're in the area and need something and you have a wholesale need, please pop in or go to say hi and thank them for helping make this program possible. And also thank you to the Coin family as well, for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. This episode is sponsored in honor of all of the people who have donated to our special appeal to provide a meaningful and rich Passover for all the Jewish refugees who have fled Ukraine this year. Thank you for your generosity. And we know that that's making a big difference in their celebration, even while they're in exile from their own homes. Now, if you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions that you have about Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi program, such as this. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings to you from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you.